I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. Luke 17, 11 through 19, we continue in our series in the Gospel of Luke with a story that appears only in the Gospel of Luke, a very important narrative account. So I invite you to stand now also as we read the Holy Word of God, Luke 17, beginning in verse 11. Hear now the Word of God. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned, and with a loud voice glorified God, and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not found not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Let us uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we, we do come thankful for the word, and we desire that you would teach us through it tonight. So we ask that, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would uh, awaken us to the meaning of this passage, the application of this passage. I pray that it would work its way into our hearts, uh, that it would bring forth repentance, faith, growth, uh, obedience, and gratitude. Uh, Certainly this is our desire and it is the point of the passage, so we pray for that effect now. And we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. So as we return tonight, brothers and sisters, to the Gospel of Luke, we encounter one of these stories, one of these uh, narrative accounts, that only appears in the Gospel of Luke. And anytime you run into an account in the Gospels that occurs in only one of them, I think it is an opportunity to be grateful to God that he has given us these four Gospels to give us such a rich picture and understanding of the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. The healing of the ten lepers is also a unique account in another way. Not only is it occur just once in the Gospels, But it's also unique because it is one of the few miracles where ten people are affected by the healing, but only one seems to demonstrate the faith and the conversion uh, of the miracle's intended uh, purpose or a symbol, as it were. Certainly you think of like the feeding of the 5,000. Many people partook of the feeding of the 5,000, and not all of them necessarily believed in Christ. He even said that a lot of them were just seeking bread from him. And so there were people in the ministry of Christ when he was here on earth that were affected and blessed by his workings, but not all of them were saved. And I think it is fair to say, if we study the whole structure of the passage, that though ten were healed, only one was saved, at least so far as we see in this narrative. Perhaps they they came to Christ in other ways later in life. But what is demonstrated in the 
story of this one leper, the Samaritan, the foreigner who comes back, is that he demonstrated gratitude to God. He gave glory to God. This, and these, brothers and sisters, are the, the basic responses of one who has truly been converted. Glory to God. Conversion is demonstrated by that. Glor- glorifying God, giving thanks to God, worshiping Jesus. That's what you see in a con- the life of a converted person, uh, as we will uh, see as we proceed. Anyone who has been granted the gift of faith and the gift of repentance and who has come to know Jesus Christ as Savior should be, by necessity, one who is overwhelmed with gratitude to God and growing in gratitude. In fact, we read in Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes here about the one who is rooted and grounded in Christ. And I always found this a fascinating uh, passage because we often talk about how Paul talks about rooting and grounding in love, and that's really foundational in Ephesians. Now in Colossians 2, verses 6 through 7, Paul talks about rooting and grounding that manifests itself in thanksgiving. Listen to what he says in Colossians 2, verse 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So this is one of the fruitful aspects of the Christian life amongst all the other fruit of the Spirit is we are abounding in thanksgiving. If you think of a fruitful tree, it should be like a tree that is weighed down with so much fruit. It is abounding, like some of these really good apple trees that are just dropping uh, abundance of apples. You can't even keep up with them because there's so much fruit. That is what the Christian life is to be growing into, is an abundance of thanksgiving. So keep that in mind in terms of this teaching on the Christian life as we look at the narrative of the healed leper here in our account. So let's look at verses 11 through 13 again and consider how this particular narrative is framed by Luke. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. We're told by Luke that Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem. And and this is actually a large part of Luke's narrative is after Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, Jesus says, all right, we're going to Jerusalem. In fact, it says in Luke 9 that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem like a flint. He was committed to his mission in Jerusalem, which was the accomplishment of the redemption of his people. And so that is where he's going. And as he makes that journey, Luke says, he was passing from Galilee through Samaria to Jerusalem. Likely this means he was on the eastern side of Samaria in the region of the Jordan River. Uh, In some cases, he did pass into Samaria. In some other cases, they went around Samaria. And at this point, it says that our Lord, he entered a certain village. We're not told the name of the village at this point. Luke is not concerned to give us that detail. But as he entered the village, we are told that he met, he encountered these ten men. And these ten men are are lepers. They're standing afar off, which was, of course, what lepers were required to do. They couldn't just run up to Jesus uh, according to the requirements of the Old Testament law. They had to keep their distance for the sake of not uh, infecting others and hurting others by means of this disease. 
And we heard earlier this morning a little bit about leprosy as Pastor Kevin was speaking in the Lord's Supper and drawing out this, um, this, this passage and application there. And we recall that leprosy was a very horrible thing to deal with. The modern use of the term leprosy is applied to a skin disease known as Hansen's disease. That's another name for it. And this modern example of leprosy has a discoloring of the skin, lesions, lumps on the skin, and sometimes physical deformity that affects the limbs. Now, the word leprosy in the Bible actually probably covered a pretty broad range of skin diseases. When you look at Leviticus 13, it it had quite a number of different things in view. But we know that in all these cases, whenever we hear this word leprosy, we're talking about a disease that affected the skin, uh, that affected the physical appearance, that was uh, damaging to the body and was contagious, and therefore required a removal of that person uh, from the community at some distance. Now, if you go back to Leviticus 13, I wanted to read one of the requirements for a leper is described in Leviticus 13:45 through 46. Now, imagine as I read Leviticus 13, this is your life. Try to put yourself in these men's shoes for a moment and imagine having to do what these verses say and not having really any uh, possibility of healing uh, in your future. Leviticus 13, verse 45. Now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn and his head bare and he shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. He shall be unclean. All the days he has the sore, he shall be unclean. He is unclean and he shall dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. What a a hard existence to consider, to be stuck in such a condition. How isolating this was, how embarrassing this was, and how it seemed that your life would be sapped of hope if you were in such a condition. And the law of God actually required you to mark your appearance in a certain way and to cry out. So if anybody came near you, you had to keep them at a distance. Sometimes we have a much lesser application of this. We say, well, don't shake my hand. I'm sick right now. But this was much more than that. You were to, you were to shout out, unclean, do not get near me. Do not come anywhere near me. I am unclean. And the leper was required to dwell outside the camp. That's why lepers, of course, had these leper colonies, these these areas in which they lived together. That was what bound them together in unity, was their common disease. These men were in difficult straits. And you can see, if you're in such a situation, if you've heard about Jesus of Nazareth, the healer, that as he comes into town one day, what are you going to do if you're a leper? You're going to say, Jesus, have mercy on us. And that's what they do. They cry out, Master, have, have mercy on us. And indeed, this should be the heart cry of anyone who desires the saving work of Jesus Christ. We cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. That's, of course, what Bartimaeus did with great zeal and great faith. Even when everybody tried to shut him up, he said, I'm going to keep shouting, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Uh, and Jesus was merciful to him. And the Lord Jesus Christ, we must remember, has promised from a spiritual standpoint that all who come to him, he will by no means cast out. So if you are affected by the leprosy of sin, which indeed all of us are, if you come to him, if you cry out to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me, a sinner, he will have mercy upon you. 
Now, in response to their cry for mercy, the Lord responds with a unique method for healing. Look at verse 14. When Jesus hears these lepers from afar, what does he tell them to do? So when he saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. Now, we've observed in past messages on the Gospels how Jesus had absolute freedom in how he healed. And he had a lot of diversity in how he exercised his healing ministry. He was not limited to a particular method in how he healed people. You can think of all these different scenarios that are recorded in the Gospels, and I think it's, uh, it's interesting to think about the different ways in which Jesus healed and why it was, perhaps, that he chose these different methods. We know that he could touch someone and heal them, Or, on the other hand, he could say the word from a hundred miles away and that person would be healed. Isn't that amazing that you you could touch somebody or you could just say it and a hundred miles away, at the moment of saying it, at one o'clock in the afternoon, a boy is healed. Praise God. He could take a girl's hand and raise her from the dead, right? A little girl, I say to you, arise, touches her, grabs her hand. Or, if there's a stone blocking the way and you need to rise somebody from the dead, you just say, Lazarus, come forth. All the ways in which Jesus manifested his divine power was done according to his sovereign will and according to the the characteristics of his compassion and his mercy. And there are times where I think Jesus did choose to touch as a demonstration of his compassion. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 5, we have another leper that is healed. If you you remember that account, there's one leper healed in Luke 5, and Jesus actually touches the leper, which would have been a violation of Old Testament cleanliness laws, but Jesus is able to overcome that. He's able to heal and cleanse instantaneously. Now, Jesus didn't have to touch the leper, but can you imagine if you had been the untouchable to be touched by the compassionate Savior? and to be healed. This is a demonstration of Jesus' compassion, his pity, his his mercy towards those that are in weak conditions. Now, in this particular instance, Jesus does not touch these lepers. He rather chooses a different method, and this particular method that he chooses was to direct them to go to the priests, which is what the Old Testament law required, that if you believed you had been cleansed, If you had signs of healing from one of these different skin diseases, you could go to the priests and they would check it out. They would see whether you had actually been healed and there was a process that they had to follow in order to make sure that everything had been done. But usually you wouldn't go to the priest while you were still sick. Like if you had all these lesions all over your arm, like you're thinking, well, he's not going to give me a pass. Imagine going to have your, you know, we had to deal with this in the COVID period where you get your temperature checked and you're thinking, I sure hope I'm below 100, you know, because otherwise I'm not going to be able to get on this plane. But if you knew you were above 100, you wouldn't try such a thing. But thinking of the lepers here, they, they didn't probably have any visible sign yet of their healing. But he says, go, and it says, as they went, they were cleansed. This is a very interesting method in which to have someone pursue their healing. I think it was a test of their willingness to follow through on the commands of Christ. It was a faith test of sorts here for them. And it was like Naaman. You remember Naaman uh, the Syrian and 
how there was the uh, Israelite girl who ended up in his household, and Naaman is dealing with leprosy himself. And the Israelite girl who was providentially planted there at that moment, she says, I know what you should do. You should go talk to Elisha, the prophet. He can help you. And so Naaman says, all right, let's do this. He gets his chariot. He goes and finds Elisha. And he's very disappointed when Elisha says, here's what you need to do. You need to go wash in the Jordan River. And he says, why would I wash in that filthy river? We have better rivers uh, where I'm at. But it was a test of his obedience. Will you, will you trust this means that has been presented to you? And of course, when he did, he was actually healed. It was in the way of obedience to the command of Christ that the healing occurred. Now, I think we can actually observe a principle of some application for us here. We may indeed expect God to be merciful to us, but he often provides us ways and means in which to pursue certain things, and we need to, in faith, pursue those means. Uh, Just to give you a very obvious example, for the person who wants to grow in holiness, they ought to read God's word. They should obediently read the word of God and expect that God will bless the means of grace that is given to them to grow. Not to say, I'm just going to sit in here and do nothing and use none of God's means that he has provided. No, on the contrary, you should obey the word of God. You should take hold of the means that he's given you, and God will indeed help you. He will give his grace to you. He's given us various means that we need to make diligent use of to grow. Matthew Henry, he explains it this way in terms of speaking to the means of grace. He says, Go attend upon instituted ordinances. Go and pray and read the scriptures. Go show yourself to the priest. Go and open your case to a faithful minister. He applies it to that. And though the means will not heal you themselves, not you know a pastor talking to you that heals you, God blesses the means that he has appointed, perhaps with somebody praying with you over, maybe it's a physical malady, maybe it's a spiritual issue. Use the means that God has given you obediently. God promises empowering grace for us. But don't just sit there and do nothing. Uh, Trust God and use the means, whatever means he has provided for you to use. And so they were cleansed in the way of obedience to the command. Now we see that all ten did obey what the Lord commanded. They all experienced cleansing and healing from this disease. But only one out of the ten returned. And as is often the case in the Gospel of Luke, it was the unexpected person that returned. Now, we're not told the nationality of the other uh, men that were healed. We don't know if they were all like nine Jews and one, one Samaritan or uh, some mixture of that number. It's, we're not specifically told, but what, we, what is highlighted for us was that it was the Samaritan who returned. And so it is the case often in the Gospel of Luke that it is these who are unexpected who are drawn in by God's grace. The people that were the outcasts and the foreigners of society and the the rejects of society. Jesus, he, he, he reached out to them. He saved them. He brought them new life. We think of Zacchaeus the tax collector who was nobody's favorite person probably in that area. But Jesus said, I'm coming to your house and you're going to be saved today. And he was saved. So let's look at verses 15 through 16, the response of the healed Samaritan leper. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned 
and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So brothers and sisters, the one who has been mercifully redeemed by the Lord cannot help but thank and praise God. If you have experienced the saving power of God, if you have been awakened to the gospel, if you have come to know Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, then then God is going to grant you not only the grace of faith, but the Spirit of God is going to give you all these other graces too. And one of those graces will be the grace of gratitude and praise. And we see that in our psalm that we read tonight, Psalm 116. Uh, the psalmist begins, he says, I love the Lord. Why? Because he has heard my voice and my supplications for mercy. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. And he, he says, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? He's overwhelmed by the, the mercy of God and delivering him time and time again. And so, when it comes to these ten lepers, why was it that only one returned? I think it's fair to say that ten of, the, ten of the men, all of the men, were externally cleansed. But it seems that only one had an internal cleansing, a faith granted, the grace, not only of faith, but uh, the grace of thanksgiving that comes with that. It would seem that based on the events of the narrative that only this one man really grasped the implication of the healing miracle. Many, like going back to the 5,000 that were fed, not all of them grasped the implication of that, that meal. They needed to see that Jesus is the, the bread of God that has come down from heaven. That's what they needed to get from the meal, but not all of them did. And so it is with this miracle, which we have said that all the miracles, though they are physical, literal realities that happen in space-time and history, they have a spiritual application. They have a point spiritually speaking, and I think with the case of the cleansing of the leper, it is a picture of the cleansing power of Jesus Christ to cleanse us from our sins. And so let's look at this man's response in more detail. What were the elements of his, his faith demonstrated in this narrative? Now, I, I've argued in some of our past uh, times in the Gospel of Luke, that there's these pictures of conversion for us. You think of the man uh, that is cleansed of the demons and the gatherings. I think he's a picture of conversion because having been cleansed of these demons, he now worships at the feet of Christ and he wants to serve Jesus. That's what it looks like to see a converted person. And I think here too, the, the Samaritan leper who is healed, he is a picture for us of what conversion manifests itself to be. And there's three elements that I see here in his response. Number one, he worships Jesus Christ, falling down at his feet. Number two, he gives, th he gives thanks to the Redeemer. And number three, he glorifies God with a loud voice. Each of these elements here are demonstrated in his response to this healing. And let's think about the first one. He falls down at the feet of Jesus, and he, he gives thanks. And remember that to prostrate oneself was an act of worship. The, the apostles would never let anybody bow down at their feet. You remember uh, Cornelius in Acts 10, and Cornelius comes, and Peter shows up, and, and Cornelius falls down at Peter's feet, and what does Peter do? He says, get up, 
I'm a man like yourself. Don't, don't, don't bow to me. But Jesus never corrected anybody for prostrating themselves before him. He is the God-man. He is the one worthy of all praise and honor and worship. Indeed, this was an act of worship. He falls at his feet in gratitude before the Savior who has redeemed him. And so too, brothers and sisters, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, if we have received the saving grace of God, then we too must fall down at the feet of Christ in worship. We must bow the knee to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Have you joined the, healer, the, the, the healed leper in worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you regard him as your Lord and as your God? Do you worship him? That is the first response that we see here in the, the leper in his, in his response to this healing. The second is that he gave thanks to Jesus Christ. He gave thanks to God. And here we see one of the essential marks of a converted sinner is thanksgiving. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That is the basic profession, basic characteristic of our lives as Christians is to give thanks And I believe that this is a fundamental dividing line between a rebellious world and the world that has been redeemed, those that are in Christ. Whereas the world in rebellion refuses to thank God, the Christian redeemed from destruction by a merciful Savior should abound in thanksgiving to God. And Pastor Kevin brought this out this morning, so we'll continue to reinforce what he said with Romans chapter 1. This is exactly, I was looking at my notes, uh, and Pastor Kevin was saying exactly the same things that I had written down concerning my notes, because it's very plain as you look at Romans 1, 20 through 21. Listen to this description. Paul is describing the world suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, doesn't want to acknowledge God. What does it look like? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their heart thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so what Paul is saying, he says, the knowledge of God is evident in the world. The created order shows forth the power of God, the divine attributes of God. And so people, when they're trying to get away from God, they they suppress that truth. They want to think about it. And they do that by refusing to glorify God, and they refuse to give thanks to God. This is the Lord who graciously gives to all mankind food, water, rain, sunshine, in abundance of natural resources for mankind's use. Daily, God is merciful to an ungrateful, undeserving world. His sun rises upon the just and the unjust. But the, the rebellious world that suppresses the truth refuses to acknowledge those gifts from God. And I remember... A few years ago, I think it was a New York Times opinion piece, and I'm, I'm working somewhat from memory here, but it was a fascinating piece. It was written on Thanksgiving Day, and it was a secular attempt to explain what do we do on Thanksgiving Day, and who are we giving thanks to? Well, and basically the answer was we try to give thanks to one another for the different things that we've done for one another. I'm thinking, that's really poor. 
That's really falls short of recognizing the source of all of these blessings, which is so much greater than any of us have power to give to one another. The secular worldview doesn't really have reason to give thanks. And so this is the world in blindness and rebellion, but if we have come to saving faith in Christ, this is not us anymore, brothers and sisters. We're not in that category of Romans 1. Instead, here is what we do. This is Colossians 1, verses 12 through 14. Paul is speaking about our redemption. This should describe us if we are in Christ. Colossians 1, verse 12. Paul says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Hallelujah. It's obvious that we have an abundance of reasons to give thanks to God. We can certainly tally up all the other things that the unbelieving world receives that we receive, right? We get the rain, we get the sunshine, we get the food, we get all these great blessings. But on top of all of those, Paul says, you are a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in light. You've been delivered from the power of Satan's grip. You have been transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son of God. And you have redemption through Him. Will we not give thanks for these things, brothers and sisters? Will we not be amazed by this? As Pastor Kevin said, the gospel should not be old hat to us. It is to be exciting, always exciting, always amazing to us. Do we not have reasons to give thanks to God for eternity? Now notice, as you turn to the pages of the book of Revelation, what are the saints in heaven and the angels of God doing? They're giving thanks and praise to God. Listen to Revelation 7, the song of praise resounding from the redeemed saints and the angels and the elders in heaven. This is Revelation 7, 9 through 12. And I want you to ask yourself, is this my song? Do I agree with these things? John writes, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and all the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Is this your song, brothers and sisters? Can you say this with sincerity? Is this, this is my heart Conviction concerning the work of the Lamb of God for me. Not only is gratitude simply a matter of what is fitting, and by that I mean as we just look at the redemption of God, it is unfitting to the facts of redemption to not give thanks, right? It's it's fitting, therefore, to give thanks. But I would also tell us, brothers and sisters, that giving thanks to God is good for our own souls. It does us good to give thanks. And this is especially the case in the midst of anxieties, in the midst of afflictions, in the midst of difficulty. That is especially the time that it is good for our souls to give thanks. 
At the times where we're most likely to focus upon what we do not have or what prayer God has not yet answered, it is those times that we must especially resolve to be grateful. And that's why, of course, we know Paul says that in Philippians 4. He talks about his command, be anxious for nothing. But he tells us that we need to deal with these anxieties in a particular way. Listen to what he says. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And Paul says, yes, bring your anxieties. You come to a God who hears, a God who carries your burdens. You can bring these things to Him, but do it with thanksgiving. And there's a promise here that God's peace that transcends our ability to explain or understand, it will come upon us. And I do believe, probably, that part of the means that God uses to bring that peace about is our thanksgiving, even as we do pray, because we're remembering the goodness of God in the midst of our anxieties. So that is the second element that I wanted to expound upon with the Samaritan's response. He gave thanks, is what the text says. Now the final aspect here, which is very similar, it's part of thanksgiving and praise, it says that he glorified God with a loud voice. I think it's noteworthy that Luke added that emphasis. With a loud voice. This was not a quiet glorifying of God. He shouted glory to God. And again, here is an essential difference between the unbelieving world and the Christian. Paul included this in Romans 1. He said they neither glorified God nor gave thanks. And why is this? Well, everyone who denies the existence of God or perhaps ignores it is attempting to suppress God's glory that is all around them. You can't be shouting about something that you're trying to ignore and suppress, right? That's why it's so offensive to talk about glory to God, to give praise to Jesus Christ, to speak of God in a positive way around people that are suppressing the truth. They don't want to hear about that. They've been trying to ignore that very unfavorable topic that they do not want to hear about. But it is a futile attempt for anybody to suppress the glory of God because it is all around us. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. He says, God's existence, his eternal attributes, they are evident. They are without excuse, therefore, to deny such things. And I'm reading currently uh, Stephen Charnock's classic work, The Existence and Attributes of God. Stephen Charnock is a Puritan from the 1600s. And in these early chapters, he has such an excellent chapter on atheism and practical atheism. And practical atheism he defines as the person who just lives like God doesn't exist. Doesn't have to actually deny God, actually, but just lives like God doesn't exist. And he talks about how foolish it is to try to attempt that atheist life, whether by profession or just by behavior. And he says that God's glory is all around us, that it is the most insane thing to do to try to deny it. Listen to what he says. Whosoever doubts of God's existence makes himself a mark against which all the creation fights. So in other words, if you set yourself out to say, God doesn't exist, the entire created order is against you. Here's what he says. All the stars fought against Sisera for Israel, and all the stars in heaven and the dust on earth fight for God against the atheist. God has as many arguments against him as there are creatures in the whole compass of heaven and earth. 
Every creature in heaven and earth says to the atheist, you are a fool. He goes on, he is most unreasonable who denies or doubts of that whose image and shadow he sees round about him. He may sooner deny the sun that warms him, the moon that in the night walks in her brightness, deny the fruits he enjoys from the earth, yea, and deny that he does exist himself. He must tear his own conscience, fly from his own thoughts, be changed into the nature of a stone which has neither reason nor sense before he can disengage himself from those arguments that show the being of God. He's saying it's all around us. To even begin to to suppress the glory of God is utter foolishness. Now the reason I bring this up is not because we're usually dealing with the problem of people around us denying the existence of God, although that does happen. We do run into those kinds of people. But so many people, they don't claim that label. They just live like there is no God. They just live as if God's glory does not even exist around them. They don't glorify God for all the evident glories that surround them every day. Of course, God's creation is an amazing thing. He is glorified by all the manifold display of, displays of his wonder and his beauty all around us. But in addition to his work of creation, if we are the recipients of his redemption, how much more should we glorify him for what he has done? And so this is a a lifelong duty for us, brothers and sisters, to glorify God for the amazing work that he has done all around us. And so we need to begin that work right now. And as long as we have breath, may we make it our aim to glorify God. As the hymn we often sing says, which we'll sing after the message here, this is, My Jesus, I Love Thee. It speaks to the sentiment, the, the heart behind our desire to glorify God. It says, I'll love thee in life, I will love thee in death, and praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath. And say when the death dew lies cold on my brow, if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. In mansions of glory and endless delight, I'll ever, ever adore thee in heaven so bright. I'll sing with the glittering crown on my brow, if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. This is our heart, brothers and sisters, if we have been touched by the redemption of God, is to give thanks and to give glory to our God. I want to close with a somewhat light-hearted but true story that illustrates the point I'm trying to make here in this message. On one occasion, Charles Spurgeon, the preacher there in England, was sharing the gospel with a very talkative woman. And of course, Spurgeon shared the gospel with hundreds of thousands of people perhaps in his life, and this woman was particularly talkative. He could not barely get a word in edgewise with her. He was trying to insert himself to say something about the gospel. She's going on and on. and So eventually Spurgeon, he finds a moment to insert himself, and then he he speaks to her. He tells her about Jesus Christ, the merciful Redeemer, the Savior of sinners, and this woman, she's listening to Spurgeon, and she begins to reflect and And as she she hears him, she begins to understand God's mercy and she bubbles over with excitement. And, And then she said to Spurgeon, she said, Oh, Mr. Spurgeon, if Christ saves me, he will never hear the end of it. She was this talkative woman. She's going to use her her talkativeness to say the praises of Jesus Christ. He's never going to hear the end of, of what he has done for me. And so I would ask you, brothers and sisters, is Jesus Christ ever going to hear the end of it from you? Are you going to run out of reasons to praise him, to give thanks to him? May it not be so. May we, into eternity, 
speak the praises of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our merciful Father in heaven, you are the source of all blessings, the source of goodness, the source of life, the source of all things. And you are worthy of our praise and thanksgiving. And Lord, tonight we we ask that as we remember the mercy that is revealed in the gospel, that we would receive that mercy. And we would give thanks to you for it. I do pray that we would recognize what you've done in our lives and it would not become something that is old to us, but something that is ever new. Something that is worth telling others about. I pray that we would never tire of giving glory to you and that we would be as a people increasingly abounding in thanksgiving, rooted and built up in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.